Let's get into it. It's Facts and Footnotes. The facts are in. Housing First can end homelessness in Moncton. A two-year study done by the Mental Health Commission of Canada backs up everything Vincent Marola described in episode two of the main show. Housing First is effective, it's humane, and it pays for itself. The study looked at 200 participants in Moncton, 100 people received Housing First, and 101 people got treatment as usual. Right now in the current system, treatment as usual means housing and healthcare are two separate systems which high acuity people experiencing homelessness are expected to navigate. Housing First had strong outcomes. The Housing First group spent 85% of the duration of the study housed. The Treatment as Usual group spent 31% of their time housed. If this was a drug trial and drug A had an 85% success rate and drug B had a 31% success rate, there would be no hesitation about which treatment to implement. Before the study began, a little over half of the participants were absolutely homeless, meaning they were sleeping outside or in their cars. The rest were precariously housed. Almost all the participants were high acuity, meaning they presented with challenging medical conditions. 60% presented with comorbidity, which is the simultaneous presence of two or more conditions, for example, experiencing both mental health and substance abuse. Unhoused folks experiencing comorbidity are incredibly common and highly likely to fall through the cracks. It's a vicious cycle because the experience of homelessness creates or exacerbates health and mental health conditions. Consider also the role that drugs can play as a tool of survival for unhoused people. Drugs like methamphetamine and crack cocaine are frankly indispensable if you need to stay awake all night, either to vigilantly protect yourself and your belongings, or simply to keep moving in order to prevent freezing to death. Or, as Debbie Warren said in episode one, it's scary to be homeless, and drugs frankly help with that. They help with that fear. So it's incredibly promising that the Housing First group saw such great results. A lot of social services are specialized to help people with a serious mental health disorder or an addiction, but not both. This model is successful at housing a group of people who are currently underserved. Comorbidity is commonly used to refer to the co-occurrence of mental health and substance abuse, but I would like to make room to acknowledge the physical health challenges of the people in this study, which presented alongside mental health and substance abuse. In this case, fully half of the participants reported a serious physical health conditions and three quarters reported a prior traumatic brain injury. In terms of the comorbidity, that means that certain participants in the study are managing physical and mental health conditions and a TBI and substance abuse all at once. So it's unclear from the report whether health problems or TBI led to a loss of employment because 69% of the participants had a history of steady employment. Although 91% were unemployed at the time of the study, which by the way inversely means that one-tenth of the participants were employed at the time of the study. Homeless people who are employed are often met with incredulity. I've seen it firsthand when I was working at a homeless shelter for women in Toronto. Many of my clients were in fact employed. They were accessing shelter because like an unexpected bill had made them unable to pay their rent 
or they were fleeing violence, or they had their work hours at a service industry job unexpectedly cut. Or there was a host of other circumstances that would cause someone to lose their home, but not their job. Many of the people I spoke to felt it was very important to hide their homelessness status from their employer because they feared they would be ostracized or that their employer would find an excuse to fire them. We also had other clients who made the decision to pursue abstinence-based recovery from an addiction and wanted to use their lived experience to help others so they would volunteer their time to do that work. And we, the social workers, encouraged them to call it work because unpaid work is still work. So my hairdresser at the time learned what I did for work and he offered to give free haircuts to clients. I announced it at the shelter, clients booked their own appointments and were very excited. Then I got this sassy email from the salon receptionist complaining that one of my clients had refused a hair appointment because it conflicted with her work schedule. And she asked me, what kind of shelter houses people who are employed? You're taking away from people who really need it. And then the salon canceled all the haircuts. That story was on my heart when I read the employment rates in this study, because there is such a pervasive myth about how unhoused people just need to get a job. And it's just not that simple. Anyways, getting back to the study, it's unclear for that 91% who was unemployed at the start of the study, whether an injury or illness led to the loss of employment or whether participants developed physical health challenges because the condition of being unhoused is not conductive to good health. But regardless of how they got there, the Housing First model helped them get out. It's the wraparound supports that made the difference. Wraparound supports are team-based collaborative supports which represent a point of delivery instead of making referrals into a system. The Housing First model is based on a homelessness intervention originally developed in New York, which includes a combination of assertive community treatment and subsidized housing in the private rental market. It's what Vincent Marola in episode two of the main show succinctly described as housing with supports. For this study, assertive community treatment was provided by a team of essentially social work super friends. There was a nurse practitioner, psychiatric nurses, an occupational health therapist, a home economist, a social worker, a physician, a clinical director, a vocational counselor, and consulting psychiatrists. Because they worked as a team, each individual benefited from the expertise of their colleagues. The caseload was 10 clients, and having that reasonable caseload allowed them to provide the intensive treatment needed by clients, as well as providing core services like counseling, case management, outreach, and documentation. I am taking a second to acknowledge the reasonable caseload because I've seen it happen where not-for-profits are stripped of resources, overloaded with clients, and then subject to complaints that their offerings are ineffective. So if ever in the future we need to compare apples to oranges, these results of this study were achieved by an interdisciplinary team with manageable caseloads. The team assisted participants to access needed resources in the community but they assumed primary responsibility for providing mental health services. The service approach was informed by recovery principles, which means they do not address addictions and mental health sequentially and do not use exclusion criteria or impose treatments. So for example, recovery principles do not ask people to be abstinent from drug use before housing them or before providing treatment for other health concerns. Clients are not forced into counseling 
or detox and clients do not get services withheld if they refuse something like a medical intervention. Instead, treatment is made accessible and offered as an option that people have the autonomy to choose or refuse. Recovery principles emphasize helping people become a valuable member of their community. This role is not a carrot withheld until a person meets a certain criteria, like following a medication regimen or sobriety or something. Instead, practitioners work with people from their current state and respect their choices. This study made some space to talk to the participants about important themes in their lives. And interestingly, both groups discussed similar themes, but the housing first group was clearly more hopeful and optimistic about their futures in relation to these themes. Both groups said spirituality had great importance in their lives. Spiritual practices like reading the Bible and prayer helped them to accept their life circumstances. Also, both groups explained they have fragile support networks. Actually, most of the participants said they had no support network. Some had connections to close family members or long-term friends, but nobody had a network of support outside of self-help groups like AA and Gamblers Anonymous. Both groups were said to be very important. Another important theme was insecurity linked to homelessness and mental health. The treatment as usual group talked about their insecurity in terms of coping with their dependence on community services, while the Housing First group was much more optimistic and they linked their feelings of insecurity to feelings of motivation to regain control of their lives and autonomy. Both groups talked about experiences with drug addiction. People receiving treatment as usual describe drug use as a downward spiral where they engaged in criminalized behaviors to obtain drugs or engaged in social isolation to abstain from drugs. The Housing First group talked about it more in terms of the new strategies and new relationships they were implementing in their lives to decrease or cease drug use. The Treatment as Usual group reported a lot more instability caused by their mental health. They talked about the lack of services, the waiting lists, their hospitalizations, and they shared a lot more concern about mental health stigma, and they held a more negative view of psychiatry. They said they felt that getting a good psychiatrist was based on luck. Because this group was only housed for 30% of the study duration, they often received mental health services while they were unhoused, and they reported that they felt they could make no sustained improvement in their well-being under those circumstances. The Housing First group shared more positive outcomes when discussing their mental health symptoms. They were better able to stick to medication regimes and access the services they needed, which makes sense since their point of service was the ACT team. The Housing First group also shared positive themes that the other group did not share. The Housing First group said they felt like they belong in their community and they feel responsible for their home and their neighborhood. They shared about achieving their self-determined goals, the most common goals being abstinence from drugs, going back to school, and budgeting. The Housing First group self-described as hopeful, as optimistic, and as having a high quality of life. Observer reports align with how the Housing First group described themselves. People in the Housing First group were better able to adapt to their community, they engaged more in treatment, and showed more adaptive behaviors, which in plain English means they were communicating more effectively, they were better able to do the daily tasks of life, and they were socializing more. Perhaps related, the Housing First group were also more socially effective, which basically means that they were better able to identify and attain a beneficial social circle. And to conclude, Housing First pays for itself. 
Over $16,000 was saved per person. An investment of $10 into Housing First is actually a savings of $7.75. The humane option is the affordable option. Well and Fair is brought to you by La Station Workspace. La Station is a co-working space that brings people together in Moncton, New Brunswick for community and collaboration. Well and Fair is hosted by me, Anna Larad, and produced by Elevate Studios.